You know, it's terrible. I don't work in my written Bible very much anymore. All right, y'all ready? Verse 38. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified. So do you know who that man is, kids, who through this man our sins are forgiven? Who is that man? Let me hear it. Who? Jesus, that's right. So through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. But do you know what else it says? Everyone who believes in him is justified. Do you know what that word justified means? One way of thinking about it is this. Just if I'd never sinned. That when we believe in Jesus, it's just if I'd never sinned. Did you know that? Do you know that we're all sinners? If you're a sinner, raise your hand. Ah, we're all sinners. But do you know what God does through Jesus Christ? He saves sinners by His grace, and then He doesn't see us as sinners anymore. He sees us just if I'd never sinned. And do you know what? Jesus forgives our sins, and when we're justified, it means our sins are forgiven. But do you know what else it means? We're going to talk about this today, too. Not only are our sins forgiven, but when we trust in Jesus and we're justified, that means that we are accepted by God. Do you know that's good news? To be accepted by God? Do you know, it's one thing to say, I forgive you, now go away. But that's not what God does to, to us. When God forgives us, he doesn't say go away. When God forgives us, he says, come to me. And he accepts us in himself. And so, how do we get to the Father? Through the Son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the reason we can come to the Father is because our sins have been forgiven and we've been justified in trusting Jesus. So, kids, remind your parents at some point in time today what you learned today in church, that when you trust in Jesus, you're justified, and that means God sees me just if I'd never sinned. Okay? You got it? You got it. Acts chapter 13, big kids and little kids. So we're not going to make it all the way through Acts chapter 13 today. Uh, I thought about trying, but that would have been a monumental task. So we're going to divide it, and um, I'm going to go through most of it, but we're going to kind of break it up in sections. So Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 give us the record of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch, a city in Syria, what's present-day Syria, and they make their missionary journey. They go up to Greece, they go up into Turkey, they come back down and um, back to Antioch. They make a circle. 
In Acts 13 and 14, give us the record of this first missionary journey when they were sent out uh, from Antioch. The Bible says they were separated by God and the Holy Spirit sent them out. And so when we look at this section of chapter 13, we're going to look at God's providence, we're going to look at our obedience, and we're going to look at our witness to Christ and to the gospel. Acts chapter 13, let me read the first four verses to you. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. And then the next verses describe and tell us where they went, and what happened in some of those places. And we're not going to go into that. So I want to stop right there, and I want to talk about these first four verses where the apostles were separated, Paul and Barnabas were separated to God and sent out by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you that though the word was not written to us, it was written for us. And this word, this holy inspired word, is for us today. It teaches us, it instructs us, it empowers us, it leads us and guides us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, illuminate this word to us, that it would change us and transform us, that it would cause us to be conformed to the glorious image of Jesus, our Lord. We ask this that your name would be glorified through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so God's providence operates through prayer as we pursue his will. So I want you to think about this. I want you to notice how the plan to take the gospel out of Antioch came about as a result of prayer and fasting. It says that they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul. And when they had done that, they continued in prayer and in fasting. And in verse 3 says, then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So this sending out was in keeping with the command that Jesus gave to the church to go and disciple the nations. So they're not doing something that's new here. They're not doing some new thing that no one's ever done before. They're actually fulfilling the command of Jesus, the same command that's been given to us. So we never have to wonder whether we should go and make disciples. We never have to wonder whether we should go out preaching the gospel. And you do understand that you preach the gospel in lots of ways, right? I mean, we can stand behind a podium and we can preach the gospel, or we could be pushing our grocery cart down the aisle at HEB, and the way that we interact with people could be preaching the gospel. 
There's lots of ways we preach the gospel. We do it with our words. We do it with our actions. We do it everywhere we go because we are children of God. We should be gospel-centered people, and the gospel should inform everything that we do. So this sending out from Antioch was in keeping with the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of the nations. And in that sense, what they were doing was already determined by Jesus. It was the how, the where, and even the when involved in what they were doing that was greatly determined by the Holy Spirit. If, God, if they already knew what to do, what was the point of praying and fasting? Well, they knew what to do, but they, they didn't know exactly how they were going to do that, where they were going to do, and all the details of it. So it's the same way in our life, right? I mean, I would venture to say that most of the things you guys did this morning to get to this place today and be here right now at 1132, you probably did most of those things without thinking very much. I mean, I bet when you got up this morning and brushed your teeth, you really probably didn't think much about it because it's a habit. If you got up and you made coffee like you do every morning and you drank your coffee, you probably didn't think much about it because it's what you do. I mean, there's a lot of things that we do, and we don't really think about them. We just do them. And we have a tendency as believers to say, yeah, well, those aren't spiritual things. Those are just, just the things I do every day. No, listen, we are gospel-centered people. So the way we drink our coffee should be centered in the gospel. The way we brush our teeth should be centered in the gospel. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? And I'm not saying to make it weird. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we cannot separate what we do in life, even the most mundane trivial, daily, without thinking tasks. We can't separate those things from who we are. We are children of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are gospel-centered individuals going out into this world, shining the light of Christ, preaching the gospel with our very lives. We don't just turn that on and off and say, well, this is this is gospel and this isn't. This is spiritual and this isn't. No, we are spiritual beings and everything we do in that sense can't be separated from the spiritual reality of who we are. And so they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. The actions of the church should not first be developed in a strategy meeting, but in a prayer meeting. It says they prayed and fasted. It didn't say they called the committee together to find out where they were going to send the missionary. They prayed and fasted. Nothing wrong with committees. I've worked with lots of committees, not just in the church. I work with more committees outside the church than I do inside the church. Committees are great, but we're talking about the church. We're talking about the believers. We're talking about how we go about conducting our business and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't do that through strategy meetings. We do that through prayer. And that's what we see the church doing here. Too often we spend time developing our plans based on man's wisdom and direction instead of spending time in prayer and fasting to seek after God's wisdom and direction. As we trust in God's sovereign providence in all things, 
we see God using prayer and fasting to reveal His specific will to His people through the Holy Spirit. That's what's happened here in Antioch. God's providence was all over this entire endeavor. Paul's first missionary journey, his, all of his missionary journeys, all of his life was it, was, it was in God's providence that he set out to Damascus and encountered Jesus on the road. It was God's providence that he did everything he did. It was God's providence that they left Antioch, but it was not without prayer and fasting because God's providence operates through prayer and fasting as we pursue his will. So we trust God in his sovereign providence in all things, but we also pray and we fast, and we seek after God and His will in all things. All of this is governed by His Word, by the Scripture, as revealed to us in the Bible. So the Spirit of God is never going to tell you to do something that's not consistent with the Scripture. There are some things the Scripture revealed to us that we don't have to pray about, we don't have to think about. We've already got the direction, the command by God. So you never should have to pray, I wonder if I should live my life according to the gospel today. Maybe I should pray about that. No. It's who you are. It's who we are. It's those things, like if you're going to buy a car. The Bible doesn't tell you to go buy a car, but you need a car sometimes, right? You need a car every day. If you don't have a car, you might say, you know, I need to pray about getting a car. And so you pray about getting a car. And God blesses you with a car, right? And God blesses you with a car. And it wasn't the color you prayed for. What do you do? I do know, I do know people who have done this. Well, someone else, so-and-so offered me a car, but it wasn't the color I prayed for. That's the kind of weirdness I'm talking about that, that we, we don't want to participate in. There are some things we pray about. There's some things we don't have to pray about. There's some things the Bible clearly tells us and outlines. There's some things it's silent on. Well, what do you do with those things the Bible is silent on? You pray about them. You seek God about it. We trust God in His sovereignty. But we pray about things. We trust God to give us leadership and direction. And he does that by the Holy Spirit, just like he did here with the apostles, with the disciples in Antioch. God uses all of these means as his means. He uses all of these as his means to accomplish his providence, his will. He uses his word. He uses our worship. He uses our prayers along with fasting to move us in concert with his will. We can trust in the providence of God and we can know that there is no greater weapon, there is no more effective tool than we that we have than prayer. Sometimes we say, I don't know what else to do but to pray. No, prayer shouldn't be the final thing we come to and I don't know what else to do, I'm going to pray. Prayer should be the first thing we do. And the thing we continue to do throughout. 
Because there is no greater weapon, there is no more effective tool we have than prayers offered up to God in faith with thanksgiving. Verse 4 tells us, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. So they had the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then what did they do? They obeyed. They went. Our obedience should operate through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Obeying the Holy Spirit should not oppose our own will, but it can. I mean, it would be nice if everything God willed for us lined up perfectly with our own will. And maybe that's the way your life works, but it doesn't always work that way in my life. We have to learn how to joyfully submit our own will to God's will as we obey Him, as we obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. One of our missionaries, our missionary to Mexico, Brother Alan Ehlers, has been there now, I don't know, they've probably been there close to 70 years. And Brother Ehlers always said, he'd ask this rhetorical question, why do God's people have to be so weird just to follow the Holy Spirit? In other words, we don't have to do things in a weird or strange way for it to be God. God works in weird and strange ways. Yes, true. There's no doubt about that. But we don't have to make things weird or strange for them to be of God. Just obeying God and following Jesus will be strange enough for the world. We're living in a time that if we just obey the gospel, we're going to be seen as strange to the world. We're going to be seen as weird to the world. Don't worry, it's going to get worse. Obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit should be something we constantly do. We obey the leading of the Spirit most of the time without even thinking about it, but not always, right? Sometimes we're challenged, we're, we're conflicted, and we have to decide, am I going to follow God or am I going to go this way? Knowing this way is not God. No, you follow God. You make a choice and you follow God. There are those times and seasons of our life when God will lead us out of our ordinary. We've, we obey God and follow God most of the time and we don't even think about it because life is so ordinary. But there are those times and seasons when God leads us out of our ordinary and it's in those times that we must know it is God leading us and not ourselves. That is what prayer and fasting does. Prayer and fasting doesn't change God. Prayer and fasting changes me. Prayer and fasting doesn't align God with my will. Prayer and fasting aligns me with the will of God. We are to obey God quickly and cheerfully. This is what we teach our kids, right? Obey quickly and cheerfully. Well, guess what? It applies to us big kids too. We're to obey God quickly and cheerfully. We obey Him according to His will and preferably not against our own. And when we find ourselves in that struggle of knowing His will versus our own, we seek to make sure our will is aligned with His will. And we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit when it opposes the desire of our own will. You might find yourself at that place where your will and the will of God are at opposition. What do you do? You align your will with the will of God. You submit your will to the will of God. 
God's desire is that His will and our will become one. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, the disciples went. They went willingly, but they did not go according to their will. They went sent by the Holy Spirit, not against their will, but willingly. So there's a difference between going in our own will and going willingly. There's a difference. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit, not against their will, but in His will. As our life is saturated with prayer and fasting, we can know when and how God is leading. When our life is void of prayer, we are subject to leading ourselves in our own way according to our own will and our own desires. Because what does prayer do? Prayer aligns my will with God's will. If I'm not prayerful, then my will begins to take precedence and I come to a place where I've actually deceived myself into thinking that I may be doing God's will when I'm really not. I'm doing my will. This is the importance of prayer and fasting. This is why you see the church at Antioch sending out Paul and Barnabas after much prayer and fasting because they didn't want to just have a good idea. Hey, guys, I got a great idea. I think God would approve of it. Let's try it. That might be all right for some things, but what these guys endeavored to do, that's not when you want to do that. And when we live our life and as we live our life, we find ourselves in situations where we, we don't want to just try this and see if this is God because the consequences could be devastating to us or to someone else. So it's important that we bathe our, our desires, our will, all that we do that we bathe that in prayer and even in fasting so that our will aligns with God's will. So we must not only have the commitment to saturate our lives with prayer, we must have the courage and the conviction to lay down our own will, turn from our own way, and follow and obey God no matter the cost. You do realize we're living in a time where following God could cost us. It could cost you relationships. It could cost you business. It could cost you all kinds of things. price we may pay to follow the will of God can be costly enough, but the price of following our own will in opposition to His can be even more. It will be even more costly. To obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel told Saul. Whatever the price, the reward, the reward for obedience far exceeds the cost. Our obedience should operate through the leading of the Holy Spirit. His will, not our. Our witness to Christ must be instant, in season and out. That means we must be ready at all times. This is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul and the other disciples. This is what Paul taught his disciples. Timothy, to Timothy, Paul writes this, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word, exclamation point. Be ready, or as the King James says, be instant, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, 
exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Paul was ready when he preached the Christ in the synagogue of the Jews. So here's what we see. When we get to verses 14 through 16, we've already gone through some of Paul's missionary journey. Let me read these three verses to you. Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. It says, But when they departed Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now this isn't Antioch where he came from. This is another Antioch. So he left Syria, just north of Israel there, and he goes and he sails up in a boat, and he's, he goes to, to these islands, and he comes up, into, and, and, and he ends up in this place called Antioch, which is in the, the center of modern-day Turkey right now. You can go on a satellite image, and you can see the, the ruins of this ancient, very ancient city. And so Paul is in this city in the middle of Turkey, what we call Turkey today, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, verse 15, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then Paul begins preaching the gospel. Now, here's the thing. We can be tempted to read this account in the book of Acts and think that Paul had this thing all planned out and he had, he had emailed ahead to everyone and set up these, these preaching um, you know, appearances in these different synagogues. That's not how it worked. Going to the synagogue for worship each Sabbath was, at, was a regular part of obedience to God. Paul went to the synagogue every Sabbath to worship God. To worship Christ. To testify to Christ. When Paul gets to this important city in the Roman Empire that was at a crossroads of these regions, Paul knew where he wanted to go. He knew the important places. And he went to the important places where he could have the greatest impact. This city was a city with a long history, and they actually would send retired Roman legionnaires to this city to, to live there because they had so many problems with robbers and with, with rebels. And, and so they sent old, tough old Roman legionnaires there to, to habitate this area to get it under control. But it was an area of the world that was a crossroads for these different regions, and there were trade routes that went through. There was a very strategic part of the world. And Paul goes there, and he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and when he enters the synagogue, him and his party, so there was an entourage, Paul and all of the other disciples, it'd be like us being here at Christ Fellowship Church, and all of a sudden this entourage enters the church. It's like, who are these people? I don't know. And they come and they sit down, well, obviously, if they're in the synagogue, they're Jews. They're worshipers of the true and living God. That would be the assumption. There would be something about them that would, would, everyone would know that these are believers, these are worshipers of God. So going to the Sabbath was a common thing. It was a regular thing. 
Paul and his party went to worship God, knowing that the Holy Spirit would open a door. He didn't have a preset appointment. He just went trusting the Holy Spirit to open a door of opportunity. Now, here's what happened in the synagogue. We might not realize the reason we have our church structure today, this comes out of the synagogue. The synagogue was established for the Jews during the Babylonian captivity when, when they were all carried away captive and then the, the temple, the first temple was destroyed. They weren't in Jerusalem. There was no temple. So they established synagogues wherever they were, wherever they lived, wherever they were taken as captives and they were placed in cities all over the Babylonian empire which became the Persian Empire, which became the Greek Empire, which became the Roman Empire. And over the course of those centuries, in their captivity, the Jews established synagogues, congregations, and they would come together on the Sabbath and they would worship God. They didn't have a temple to sacrifice in, so they couldn't do that. So they would come together and they would read the law. What's the law? It's the first, or, or Moses, very often say they read Moses which means they read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, that's, the, that's the, 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 the law. Moses, the, the writings of Moses. And they would divide those writings up into 53 or 54 portions of Scripture, and every week in the synagogue they would read one of those portions of Scripture, and by the time you got to the end of the year, They've read the entire law. So every year in the synagogue, the entire law was read. Well, in the uh, time of the Greek Empire, when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a very nasty guy, and he hated the Jews, and he did things like sacrifice pigs on the uh, altar and desecrate the temple, by then they had a second temple. And he forbid the reading of the law, and so they would read the prophets. And so it became the habit by the time Jesus is walking the earth and Paul is in the synagogue, the custom was to read Moses and the prophets. And so you would read Moses, and then you would read the prophets, and after the reading of the prophets, the people were dismissed. So it was a little bit different. They didn't necessarily have a guy get up and preach like we do, they read the law. They read Moses and they read the prophets. So in a sense, it was a very structured service. And if they didn't do anything else, they read. They always read the scripture. And then they had the Psalms and they had prayers and they would sing their prayers and sing the Psalms. So what I'm saying is, in a sense, in one sense, it was a very structured service but there was also space for the Holy Spirit to move as he willed and through, through the participants. So the Spirit moved through Paul's participation. So they read the appointed portion of Scripture that day from the law. They read the appointed portion of Scripture that day from the prophets. It was time for the people to be dismissed, but this entourage has come into the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue says, Men and brethren, if you have a word of exhortation, say on. Guess what that was? That was the opportunity that Paul had prayed for. That was the door, the open door that Paul prayed for so that he could preach the gospel. And when that leader of the synagogue said, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, 
say on, Paul stood up and he began to preach the gospel. And Paul gave witness to the gospel of Christ and he gave witness with a warning. Now he goes through and he's preaching the gospel and, and we'll just skip down to verse 38, 38 through 41. So Paul goes through, he preaches the gospel. Now remember, they've heard the reading of the law and they've heard the reading of the prophets. We don't know what it is, but there is no doubt Paul took the law because when you read this, he's taking the law, he's taking the words, he's taking everything about Moses, he's taking all of this and he's applying it to Christ and he gets down to, what, to our verse 38 and he says, therefore, all of this preaching of the gospel, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. This man, Jesus, who David spoke of, who Moses spoke of, who, who David spoke of, who would sit on the throne of David, but it's not David because David saw corruption, but this man, he didn't see corruption. Therefore, be it known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were declare it to you. He just quoted from the prophet. Paul, that was a quote from the prophets. It was a warning. So through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified, not through the sacrifice of an animal, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through this man alone is the forgiveness of sins. But not only that, through this man alone we are justified. Being justified is more than being forgiven, it's being accepted. Being justified is being forgiven, but it's more. It's being made acceptable to God. God doesn't just forgive us and dismiss us, remember? Like I told the kids. He forgives us and He accepts us. God accepts us into His very own family. He saves us, forgives us, adopts us, and makes us His very own special people. That's what Peter, that's how Peter describes us. When he says, you are a, a, a royal priest to the holy nation. God's own special people. God justifies us in Jesus Christ. Verse 39, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law. Now there's a way we can read verse 39 and misunderstand what it's saying. This is not an exceptional but an explanatory cause. This is not an exception. In other words, it does not mean that though the law justifies us from many things, it does not justify us from all things. And Christ makes up the difference. That's not what this verse means. When Paul says, in Christ you're justified from all things from which you could not be justified from the law, he's not saying there's some things the law could justify you from, and what, what it couldn't, Christ makes up the difference. No. 
What it does mean is that by Christ, the believer is justified from all things, while the law can justify us from nothing. Jesus did for us what the law could never do for us. This is what Paul's telling them. You think you're justified by the law? You are not justified by the law. You are only justified by this man. You are only forgiven by this man. This is the teaching throughout the New Testament letters. This is the teaching throughout the Bible, the whole Bible. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. No flesh is justified by the deeds of the law. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. We don't earn a gift. We receive a gift. Faith is not produced by our works. Faith is revealed by our works. God's gift of grace by which we are saved through faith will produce the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The root will ultimately produce the fruit, and the fruit ultimately gives witness to the root. And so with this preaching of the gospel, there was a warning that came with that witness. Beware. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. The warning is to not reject what is declared to you. This warning declares a work a work you will by no means believe. In other words, there's going to be a work declared to you that is going to be unbelievable to you. Don't reject it. This is the gospel. This is what the world can't believe because it is in bondage to sin and death. And the gospel is the only thing that will break through that bondage of sin and death. This is why we must preach the gospel. This is why Paul speaks in, in no uncertain terms. This is why today people reject Paul. Oh, I embrace Jesus, but I reject Paul. Paul was mean. Jesus is nice. Just like someone recently told me, when I said, Jesus told us to repent, oh, you must have Jesus confused with Paul. Because Jesus never told anyone to repent. And when you point out the scripture, the return is, well, Jesus never said that. It doesn't matter if it's in the Bible, Jesus would never say that. Because what have we done? We've created God in our own image. We've become our own God, writing our own holy scriptures, ordering the world according to our own will and our own desires. And if you point out anything different, it's rejected. Because the only thing I can believe and the only thing I want to believe is myself. And if we don't realize how desperately dangerous and deadly that is, we need to. This is the world we live in. This is why we must preach the gospel. Believing in Christ is trusting in Christ and obeying Christ. We are commanded to believe 
Our unbelief comes with a warning, for only our trust in Christ will justify us. To trust in Christ is to be accepted in the Father. To reject Christ is to be rejected by the Father. To reject Christ is to reject life and to so embrace, to embrace damnation. Then in verses 42 and 43, so Paul preaches the gospel. Here, That's how he ends his message. And then the service is dismissed. And verse 42 and 43 tells us what happened as a result of that message. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. There weren't Gentiles in the synagogue. There were proselytes in the synagogue, which were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And that's what Paul means when he says, brethren and those who fear God. The brethren were the Jews. Those who fear God were the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And so word spread about this gospel, so much so that the Gentiles begged that Paul would preach to them the following Sabbath. Verse 43, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Paul's witness to Christ and the gospel of grace produced fruit because the life of the Holy Spirit was in the message of the gospel. The same life that produced fruit in Paul's day, the same life that was in his gospel, is the same life that's in our gospel today. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in you, and it will strengthen your mortal body. This is why preaching the gospel is crucial in the day that we live in. If we preach good philosophy, nice messages that make people feel good about themselves, hoping that the goodness of God will lead them to repentance. That's not the goodness of God. The goodness of God is there is a Savior, and if you don't trust in Him, you cannot be saved. You are a sinner, and the only way your sins can be forgiven is by looking to this man, the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are rejected by the Father, and the only way that you can be accepted by Him is to be justified by Him. And the only way you can be justified by Him is to believe in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news. That is kindness. Not go live any way you want, believe anything you want, and in the end it's all going to work out because God is love. No. God is also just. And God did not send His Son to die and shed His blood on a cross so that we could live our life any way we want, with no consequence, at least no eternal consequence. The same Spirit that worked in Paul's gospel is the same Spirit that works in our gospel because our gospel is not Paul's gospel, it's not our gospel. The gospel we preach must be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the good news is good news to some, but it's not good news to all. To those who accept it, it's good news. To those who reject it, it's not good news. That's why Paul issued the warning. Don't reject the word being declared to you, because if you reject it, then you are rejected of God. To those who embrace it, we believe it. Those who believe it, 
and those who live according to it. The gospel is life, for Christ is the gospel, and He is our life. And there is no other name by which man can be saved. Only in Christ are our sins forgiven. Only in Christ are we justified, accepted into the Father's love. This is the grace of God. This is the good news of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes we talk about the providence of God and we think that that means that we don't need to do anything. But the providence of God is complementary to a life of prayer and fasting. Therefore, we should pray and we should fast that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our obedience is walked out as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is the power that's been given to us in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Our witness must be, in, be one in which we are instant, in season and out. That means we must prepare to be ready and live ready. Readiness requires preparation. Readiness is not a last-minute scramble. It is a life's preparation applied at a moment's notice. Begin making ready. Then you will be. Know that your trust in Christ means your sins are forgiven. Through belief in Him, we are justified in Christ. We are Justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Know that you are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that you can never boast in anything or in anyone but the cross and Christ himself. That's good news. Amen.